Appreciate that. All right, so uh, this morning we are, I'm going to just jump right in. We are, uh, we're finishing up our series called Follow, uh, Journeying Toward Life in Christ. So if you're just joining us, this is the first time that you're here, good morning. We welcome you. You're coming to the end of a series. That's okay. Uh, what, what I would say is, uh, you know, come talk to us. We'll, we'll help fill in the gaps for you. Uh, but that's okay. What we're doing is this series has been wrapping up this idea of uh, when Jesus calls us to follow him, when Jesus is calling us to follow him, to chase after him, that means that to go where he goes, to do what he's doing, to, to, to go in his ways, that's exactly what he means. When Jesus calls us to follow, to chase after him, to do what he does, to go in his ways, that's exactly what it means. It, following Jesus is not this like intellectual exercise. It's not this like metaphysical idea, this weird construct that we kind of we say we're following, but it's like we're following up here, but not, I mean like, it's not what it is. Following Jesus is an actual, physical, rubber meets the road way of life. It's this as we go, day in, day out, conscious and unconscious thing that we participate in and we partner in together. So I want to just come back to what, what my pastor friend told me uh, as I was gearing up to, to, to leave Sacramento and move back up to here and come to, to be a part of this community, to, to pastor and shepherd this group of people that we call First Baptist Church of Cottonwood, California. And as I was talking with him and sharing kind of the hopes and dreams and the plans and what I, what I kind of think it could look like and, and how it might materialize and, and some of the different, like, here's what I think it's going to do and here's what we want to do and here's some different pieces that we want to incorporate. And this pastor friend of mine, he just came and said, you know, if people in your city know your church because your members love Jesus and they love their communities, it doesn't actually matter what you do. It doesn't actually matter what you do because God is going to build your church. God will build the church. We don't build it. We don't construct it. We don't, we don't fashion it together in this way that we think God's going to be happy with us or pleased with us by. God's the one who builds the church, the community, the assembly of people who gather together and participate here. Not just here, but in your homes, in your community, in your cities. If the city knows the church because its people love God and love their community, God will do the work to build. So we want to follow Jesus. And we want to make followers of Jesus. But the only way that we can then make followers of Jesus is by being and becoming followers of Jesus ourselves. That's what it's all about. And it starts by us recognizing our identity as children. Our identity as children of a loving, patient, generous father who is encouraging and he's raising us up into maturity, not simply to become more knowledgeable or to do right things without cultivating a right relationship, but to become like the Father. We are raised up as children to become like the Father. That's the goal. To grow in our compassion and our mercy and our forgiveness and justice. Why? Because the Father says he is Gracious and compassionate and merciful and just. We grow to become like the Father. Our goal is to, as we do this, what we're doing is we are revealing the goodness and the greatness of our Father to the world as the world sees his goodness and his gracious reflected in us. Our goal is to see God's kingdom expand, to see earth transformed into something that looks a lot more like heaven. This is why we follow. It doesn't start with our heads, what we know about things. 
It doesn't start with our hands, how much we can do for God. It starts with our hearts. How do we love? What do we love? It starts with our hearts. Following in the ways of our Father means following in the footsteps of his Son. Following in the ways of the Father means following in the footsteps of the Son. Jesus is God the Father come to earth in flesh and bone and spirit. And Jesus, in his words and in his life and even in his death, reveals the glory of God, the promise of God, the hope of God, the plans of God, the word of God. Jesus shows us the way. In fact, he himself is the way. And this way is the key to life in this church. So, Part of the reason why we chose to, if you remember, if you've been here for uh, the last few weeks, part of the reason why we, uh, we did this, uh, we, we were in the book of Philippians and we were, we were cruising right through it and we stopped like four chapters in. We're going to come back to it to mo- next week um, and then we'll take another break for Easter and we'll keep going. Um, but part of the reason why we... we took a break from that regularly, regularly scheduled sermon series, uh, is twofold. One, this is a very important aspect of our DNA as a church. Following Jesus is the like, elemental thing that we have to, the essential thing that we have to grab onto as a church community. If we are going to be a church, we have to know how to follow Jesus. We have to follow Jesus. And we have to be a church that makes more Jesus followers. That's the whole point of why we're here. It's essential to our DNA. But number two, this series is actually going to become the foundation of a, a new element that we're going to be bringing into our membership process. Um, we have developed a curriculum that accompanies uh, these six elements of our following, and it's called follow. You were expecting something else. (laughs) Uh, We we created this curriculum called follow. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be working to get as many of our current members through this process, through this, this curriculum. It's not an informational curriculum. It's more personal. It's more working through these ideas of following and saying, how are you doing with this? Here, here are some ways. How, how are you doing with this? How can we encourage you to better believe and repent and follow and remain and share and multiply? Um, this curriculum is going to take about six weeks to go through. Uh, it's a one-on-one process or small groups. It's not like a big, a big organizational group because we want you to go deep. We want you to share your life with somebody. And we're going to be, uh, our hope is that uh, eventually as we get more and more people through it, our hope is that for prospective members, uh, this can be done, this will be a requirement to actually go through this curriculum prior to membership. And, And doing that accomplishes two things. First, it tells all future members of our church that this is what we're about. This is what we are seeking to do as a church and where we are going. And then second, what this does is it's a process that invites you, the members of the church, who are the hands and the feet and the eyes and the ears, it, and the noses even. It, it, I don't know why I had to say that, but it was in the notes. <laughs> you can be a nose. Um, that's what it says. Um, to participate, you can be, all the members of the church, you get to participate in discipling and encouraging new members to become a part of who we are. So here's how this works. Any member who has gone through our follow curriculum will be able to walk someone else through it. You as a member can be part of this discipleship process. There's nothing to master. It doesn't require any intense knowledge to go through. Just meet with somebody, care for them, pray for them as they seek to believe and repent, follow, share, multiply, just like you. 
And what we'll do is we'll try to pair you up as best we can with you know, new members, uh, as, as closely matched as we can. Uh, but the beauty of this is that all of us are constantly growing and maturity in our pursuit of Jesus. And each one of you has something unique to offer. I believe that. Each one of us has something to offer. You don't have to have a skill set. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to have a certain level of education. You don't have to be physically capable or you don't have to be a certain age. All you need to do is be available. That's what we're looking for. We are looking for mentors to be available. Because honestly, that's what Jesus is seeking. Jesus is just seeking people who, want to, who are going to make themselves available to the process of growing and loving and changing. We want followers of Jesus making more and more followers of Jesus. So today we're going to be looking at the last step of the process, uh, the final element of what it means to follow. We believe in Jesus, that he is who he says he is. We repent that uh, where we have been going is not the right direction, and we need to change that and look forward to someone else. That person who's calling us to believe. We need to follow that when God leads us somewhere, that we'll be willing to go. Even if that is a hard thing. But we will be willing to go. We're called to remain. Even when we're discouraged and when we have struggles and we are challenged with things, we stay connected to Jesus because he is the one who gives us life. We're not expected to just follow and then figure it out on our own and make all of this happen ourselves. We're constantly called to remain connected to Jesus. And that leads us to then share everything that we have, our money, our time, our possessions, the good news of who we are and how we have been changed and who God is in all of that. And then finally, we are looking at what it means to multiply. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Mark chapter 1, verse 16. If you have your cell phone, you can open it there as well. And if you have neither, we'd love to give you a Bible, or you can look at it up on the screen. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, Casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. And followed him. All right, so in this passage, in this passage, uh, Mark starts, he starts right away with Jesus, right in, in the beginning, chapter one of his book. Chapter one, Jesus is, is, he's arrived at the scene. Mark wastes absolutely no time in getting to Jesus and his ministry and what he is doing. So, Jesus is there. He appears, the Son of God, and he enters into human history, and he just starts proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus is coming in the name of the king to declare that oppression and suffering and resistance to God and his plans and purposes will be overthrown. The kingdom of God has arrived. Repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 10. And Jesus, he, when Jesus is calling for people to repent, what he is doing is saying, turn from your allegiance to human kingdoms. You have put your faith and your trust and your hope and your security in a human kingdom built with human hands for human purposes and human goals. I am asking you, I am urging you, I am compelling you. Turn from those kingdoms where you are pledging your allegiance, your faithfulness to that, and put your allegiance in a different kingdom. A new and better 
kingdom, one that is not of this world, to see a world that is instead informed and ruled by heaven. And now right after Jesus makes this proclamation, right after he declares that the kingdom of God has arrived, I found this so interesting. Immediately after this, he calls specific men to follow him. Jesus is all about multiplying. From the very beginning, his mission is about walking alongside with others, training them, sending them. Jesus encourages 12 men, in fact, to walk with him, to ask him questions, to serve with him, to help him, to participate with him, and to share life with him. He's all about multiplying. Now, notice what happens to these guys, right? Simon and Andrew and and James and John, what are they? They're fishermen. They fish. So fishing is their, it's their vocation. It's their, their life trade. It's their, like, their job, right? We have jobs. Very few of us have a job of fishermen on the, on the West Coast, uh, where we are in the valley especially. But they're fishermen by trade. Now, in first century Judea, this is where they live, the first century in the kingdom of Judea, which is in the Middle East, this, this society is what economics, economists, economics, economists, thank you, wife, um, what economists would call a limited goods society. A limited goods society. So unlike America, we have what's called the American dream, right? We have the American dream. And what is the American dream? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And, and we call it that because we kind of believe, like, inherent to our identity as Americans, that if we have this combination of, like, education and, and hard work, um, it's all readily available to you, and it can take you anywhere. And I know that's not always true, and I know that there are, like, social and economic factors that often contribute to us uh, not moving up in the world, not making it, but the option is always kind of there, There's always the opportunities. There's always the resources and the potential that is available for anybody to make it, to live the dream, right? We have the resources for it. America is what you would call an unlimited goods society. But Judea was different. Judea is a limited goods society, and that means that there's only enough raw material and there's only enough wealth to go around. So, That means that if you were born lower class, when you grow up, you're going to be lower class. If you're born into wealth, you're going to be wealthy. Because as the wealthy get more money, where are they taking it from? They're taking it from the lower class. Because there's only so much to go around. So wealthy get wealthier, poor get poorer. They stay in their social structures. There's no moving up in in first century Judea. There's no moving up in your social classes. You stay where you are. So that also means that, like, uh, if your family practices a trade, so if you're a fisherman or a carpenter or you're uh, a religious member, uh, that's what you do too. You do what your, your parents did. You do what your family line does. Your vocation is a family trade. It's not you get to pick your own. Like you go up, you get educated, and you get to choose your own adventure. It's, you, it's your adventure's chosen for you. That's how it works there. So uh, this trade then, it becomes part of your family, and you become like an apprentice to your father, and his land and his equipment will be passed down to you, and, and you partner then with your family to provide for the whole. So, when Simon and Andrew, look at, listen to this, when Simon and Andrew and James and John, they're fishermen by trade, that means their family is fishers. When they leave uh, everything behind to become followers, they leave everything. They leave their family, they leave their futures, they leave their livelihood. They're not just going on an adventure, they're leaving behind all safety, all security, all comfort, all future hopes. 
And they're putting everything on the line to do this. They leave behind their safe space, their safe space, the place that they know and they're familiar with and they're comfortable with, and they walk forward into something that is unknown and scary and dangerous, knowing that their life will never look the same. Everything will change. Now, I want to come back to this, this later, this idea of, of, of leaving behind that safe space. But for now, just recognize that there was a physical and emotional and societal sacrifice that was made by these guys just to follow. Just to follow. Required immense sacrifice to leave the boat. Now, look at then what Jesus says when he's calling out to them. He says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Now, literally in the Greek, that it says this, come after me, and I will make you to become fishermen of men. That's what it literally says in the Greek. Come after me, and I will make you to become fishermen of men. So Jesus is saying basically three things here. Three things. He says, first, Following is not just joining a social group or bonding with people who have a common ideology or adhering to a specific moral code. Following means coming after another. That's what it means. Where he leads, you go. What he says, you hear and then you say it. What he does, you watch it and then you do it. Where he leads, you go. Where... It means whether to fame or to shame, toward life or towards death, you will receive the same reward as that person because you're following them into it, wherever it is. Glory or shame, life or death, you go. So second, that's first. Second, if you choose to follow, you will undergo change, Jesus says. You are going to be shaped and molded not by you, but by someone else, into something that you were not before. This is a process, and it's going to take time. Jesus takes 12 men, and he invests three years of time and energy and teaching into them. He takes ordinary people with zero theological training, no, next to no literacy, no public speaking experience, no cultural awareness beyond their own small society, and he empowers them to go and to serve and to heal and to proclaim the truth of the kingdom of God to the known world at that time. Look at Jesus' last words as, as Matthew records. In Matthew chapter 28, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded to you. That's the last thing that Jesus says to them. But it is only possible, it is only possible because Jesus shared his life and ministry with his brothers by teaching them and training them to continue the mission. What is the mission? What is the mission? Mark chapter 1. You will be fishermen of men. I will make you to become fishermen of men. Jesus says, your old vocation, your old identity, you are a, you are a fisherman. You fished for your family. You fished for your money. You, fished for your, you, you think you're fishing for fish, but you're fishing for your family. You're fishing for money. You're fishing for your career. You're fishing for your future. You're fishing for your life. Your new vocation, Jesus says. Your new identity is a fisherman of men. In calling them to follow, Jesus calls them to reorient their entire identity, everything they know and believe about themselves around a whole new vocation a whole new call of life. When Jesus enters your life, 
whether it's through an encounter with a believer or in, in reading the Bible or in experience his, his healing or his provision or his care, when he comes into your life, he is calling you to the same thing. He's calling you to the exact same thing. He is calling you to join with him on his mission to be changed and to multiply. Now, so this is the goal, right? This, this is the, the aim of what we're following. This is, as we're growing in maturity, as we go from spiritual babies and toddlers to spiritual mothers and fathers, uh, the spiritual life cycle is similar to our natural life cycle in this way, but, but as we go, our end, the end result is that we will learn to lead others as we follow. See, you have a part to play in making disciples. And when I say making disciples, I don't mean growing the church organization. I don't mean increasing numerical attendance. What I mean is making disciples is is about making more followers of Jesus. It's about connecting people to Jesus. That's all it is. This is the end. This is the aim of what we're doing. The natural result of following is to lead and make more followers. But what is it that holds us back in this? What is it that that tends to just hold us back from this, this desire, this end to multiply? What experience what keeps us from like experiencing the life that comes with this? Now, I can give you Jesus' plan for us, and I can tell you how and why we follow, and I can tell you how much joy that you will have in participating, and how much it contributes to your spiritual growth. But I know that even as I say that, even if I say, you're called to make more followers of Jesus, that there is going to be something inside of you that pauses just for a second. I... I'm guessing, but I'm pretty sure that this is happening. As I say, you're called to multiply. That there's something in you that just pauses, that hesitates, just for a second, and it says, wait a minute. Go, therefore, and make disciples. It sounds nice. It's a good idea. It's not going to be my thing. I'm not going to be the discipling kind, the, the multiplier, the, the evangelist. And I know this is true because I've experienced it myself. Now, if I'm describing you right now, if hesitation is where you're at, you may be in a spiritual rut. You might be in a spiritual rut. Now, let me explain this. Uh, What is a spiritual rut? A.W. Tozer, uh, he writes this. He says, when we come to the place where everything can be predicted... And nobody expects anything unusual from God. We are in a rut. The routine dictates, and we can tell not only what will happen next Sunday, but what will occur next month, and if things don't improve, what will take place next year. Then we have reached the place where what has been determines what is, and what is determines what will be. That's a spiritual rut. When we fall into these ruts, there are two things that tend to happen inside of the church. Uh, Either the church primarily becomes a social club where we spend time with good moral people or the church becomes an educational institution where we bury ourselves in the study of God's word and we go from Bible study to Bible study, lesson to lesson, but but nothing changes. we, We just continue in those things. It becomes routine, dry, consistent, safe, predictable, but same. And the life begins to wane, to dry up. Now, when you read about the life of the disciples in the gospel, or when you read about Paul in the book of Acts, these these men, they're, they're in anything but a rut, right? When you say that, when you read about them and what they're doing, you're like, that's not a rut. That's clearly not a rut. 
right? There's this constant like life and vitality and faith and risk and reward that's waiting in every chapter. That's what compels us to keep reading through it. Now, why is this? I mean, what is the disconnect between the vitality of the first century disciples and our modern life? What's the difference? Now, if you've been here for any of the previous messages, you actually might know the answer. The disconnect is fear. Fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of losing control. Fear of change. Fear of risk. Fear causes us to draw an uncrossable circle that is around what we know and what we trust and are certain of, around familiarity and security. It's a safe space. We like safe spaces. Now, let me also say here, it's actually good to have safe spaces for certain seasons. It's actually okay for us to have a space that is safe for us. It provides a a comfortable place for us to learn. It it, it gives us this uh, opportunity to practice love and, and care and responsibility. It gives us room to doubt, to question, and yet to be accepted in the midst of it. There are great things in safe spaces. Again, for certain seasons. But you can only grow and mature so much inside that safe space. You will only grow and mature to the extent that you can walk to that uncrossable line. If you stay here, you will only grow and change so much. Now, since our identity is as children of God, right? Our identity as as a child of God, and we are learning to grow into spiritual adulthood, it makes sense then that I would use uh, another illustration about my children, right? It's a good opportunity for it. So I'm going to talk a little bit about my my five-year-old daughter, Nora. She's right there. Okay, now... Nora is, she's grappling with this concept right now. And you might say she's in like this developmental rut, so to speak. Uh, Nora always tells us that she is never, ever going to get married. She's never getting married. Why? Because she's going to live with us forever. (laughs) Forever. She's never leaving my house. She's never going to, she's also never going to grow up. Uh, she's not going to turn six. And in fact, if you ask her, uh, she, she'd rather, she's not a big fan of the, of the age five at the moment. Um, her safe space was when she was four. Her safe space was four, and, and five is kind of looking a little scary right now to her. Um, she's accepting it, she's just getting used to it, but four was like her safe space. Five is scary and uncertain. Um, now, that's, it's cute, and we laugh about it. You know, like, oh, you can stay with us forever. But I know you can't stay with us forever. Like, that's actually not going to happen. Why do I know that? It's because she, we know, you and I know, she cannot developmentally, physically stay five or, or four forever. It, it, it doesn't happen. What would happen if she tried to stay in her rut, inside of her safe space? What would happen? What would happen if her parents, who love her, and, and honestly would be, I, we would be just fine if she never grew up, and she stayed four forever, and if I stayed 32 forever, that would be great too. Um, well, what would happen if she just like, if, if we just, as her parents, just fought to keep her in her space and never experience anything new or different or scary or, or, or uncertain? What would happen? See, there's something fundamentally flawed and almost obvious about this, right? We can't do this. Now, as one who had to grow up, I have encountered scary things and sad things and hard things. But I have also experienced deep love for the woman who would become my wife. 
I have learned how to take care of myself. I have learned how to contribute to the society around me. And through maturity, growing up, I have learned how, I have been able to now take on the responsibility, I've been given and taken on the responsibility to train and love new children who will take my place. And as the father of four, my wife and I have literally multiplied. We have literally multiplied. See, fear, fear causes us to come up with all kinds of excuses. All kinds of excuses why we shouldn't multiply and why it's okay if people enter into our safe space. You know, as long as they know the rules and they follow the customs of the safe space. See, a church that remains stuck inward toward itself will never multiply. It may add occasionally. It may add occasionally. Again, as long as they know the rules and they follow the customs and, and of what it is here, as long as you're willing to comply with my safe space, I'll let you into it. So it may add occasionally, but it will never multiply. What did Tozer say? When we come to the place where everything can be predicted and nobody expects anything unusual from God, we are in a rut. When church only happens on Sundays or inside the safety and security of our building, we are in a rut. When we do everything possible to protect this safe space, we are not only in a rut, we are also in an exclusive rut. So how do we break out of this? How do you break out of this? How do you leave a spiritual rut? Just leave. That's kind of the answer. You just leave it. Leave the rut. This requires taking a leap. Take a leap of faith. Now, have you ever heard the saying, uh, if, you wanna, if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat? Okay, that's based on Matthew chapter 14. Peter gets out of the boat and he sees Jesus and he's like, I want to come to you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, don't do it. But, but he gets out anyways and he starts walking and then he, he sinks. But, you know, if you want to walk out of the water, you have to get out of the boat. Um, that's a really cheesy line. If you thought about it. Well, let me just say, first of all, I don't recommend this. Uh, nine, because, you know, like 99 times out of 100, you're going to fall in the water. Like, don't, don't go home and say, hey, they say, if you want to walk on water, get out of the boat. So then just get out. Don't do this in the lake and be like, I'm going to try this now. You're, you're going to probably sink. I would say, uh, let me change that and say, if you're going to walk on water, make sure that Jesus is standing there right in front of you. Right? That's kind of the, I'm not giving you some like key to, to do miracles. I'm saying Jesus kind of has to be right there saying, hey, come on out. All right? That's, that's the, the context you're going to need if you want to walk on water. Jesus kind of has to be there. All right? But there's this, there is a sentiment behind this sort of cheesiness that has a lot of merit. If you want to follow Jesus, if you are going where he wants to go, if you want to make followers of Jesus, then you are going to have to leave your safe space to go to the dangerous spaces. If you want to follow Jesus, it will require you taking a step out of your safe space. And I say a leap. It doesn't have to be massive. It just has to be a little bit. Think about how Jesus trained and mentored and empowered his followers. First, what happens? They watch him. They just, they just watch him. And then second, they, they ask him questions. How, why did you say that? What are you doing there? What, did, what just happened? I'm really confused about this. Then they actually participate in the loving and the, the serving and the healing uh, and the teaching. And then Jesus sends them out two by two for a season. And then he allows them to experience life without him, to, uh, to experience fear and doubt and uncertainty about the future that could be without Jesus. He gives them room to doubt. He gives them opportunities to, to feel 
failure. And then he leaves them and he sends them out to make disciples. Jesus encourages his followers to take small, calculated risks that progressively challenge them to look upward, inward, and outward. To see who God is, to see who they were, and to see others in exactly the same way. To recognize that a gracious God has enough grace for them and enough grace for the world as well. They were invited, changed, challenged, and sent. If you want to follow Jesus, that is the process for you. You will be invited, changed, challenged, sent. In order to get out of your rut, take a small, calculated risk for Jesus. Missiologists will call this liminality. Liminality, not lemonality. Nothing to do with lemons. Liminality. And liminality talks about this. It describes this like boundary or threshold situation. It's the in-between space. The liminal space is the in-between space. It's between safety and danger. Spiritual growth, which is this true life-giving growth, it does not occur purely inside the, same, the safe space. Some of it does, but not, not purely. Nor will it happen exclusively in the dangerous spaces. Okay? The in-between space, the liminal space, is where growth happens. Liminality is the choice that we make to stand up and take that first step out of the rut, out of the safety, into the unknown. It's where we get humbled and disoriented and scared that we truly learn to trust who this God is that multiplies. We are not actually responsible for the multiplication of God's church. You are not actually responsible for the multiplication of God's church. God builds his own church. Remember that? God will build his church. He's the one who does it. We are simply called to proclaim the gospel, to be witnesses of God's working in our own lives through our words and through our actions. Now remember what I said last week, to talk about sharing your gospel. Sharing also includes sharing your gospel. Now why did I say your gospel? What is good news to you? To you, what is good news? It doesn't have to be theological. It doesn't have to be intellectual. It doesn't have to be this grand idea. How did you experience good news? How was the news of Jesus good to you? How you were lost, how you've been found. How you didn't measure up, but God invites you anyways. Good news for you is good news for others. Good news for you is good news for others. But the only way to share that gospel is to go. It's good to share good news with those who also have good news. But it means a lot more if you share good news with those who don't have good news. That's the point. You have to go. So you have to walk in the in-between space. You have to head out and take that step. The rest of the world actually recognizes this. Um, I read an article recently about how playgrounds have become too safe. Playgrounds have become too safe. Uh, and it said that the, the old jungle gyms, they're, they're disappearing from the American playgrounds because of fearful parents and potential lawsuits and all sorts of stuff like that. They're causing them to just be torn down along with seesaws, merry-go-rounds, rope swings. And be like, well, what's left? Well, rubber ground, where nobody can get hurt, and really, really low play structures, where there's no place to fall through or get caught or stuck. It's really, really safe playgrounds. It's like baby playgrounds. 
Um, this is what is, so this is happening. And the idea was, of course, they said, well, uh, if you remove all the danger from it, then, then nobody gets hurt and everybody stays safe and we all have a good time. But the problem is, first, nobody's having a good time because it's really boring. But then the second thing, it's actually not being safe because kids are not understanding that uh, there's, there's no measure of, of risk in their lives. So they have no place to practice safe spaces to take risks. It's not an in-between space anymore. It's purely a safe space. So kids now are going from the safest space possible to the dangerous spaces where everything is not that way. And they have to, they have to figure that out. So what's happening is when we overprotect our children, it's resulting in these like overly fearful children and it's increasing actually potential levels of psychopathology. I thought that was really interesting. So what, in, what they're now realizing that is that children need uh, a measure of risk and danger to be able to overcome fears. And ultimately, those fears will not just be in the, the playground environment, but then also in life. Children approach thrills and risks in this like progressive manner. And so then the best thing that the psychologists are saying is let children encounter the challenges at an early age so that danger can be outweighed by uh, conquering fear and developing a sense of, of mastery over these things. The higher they climb, the more bold they become. If you can only be so bold if you only climb so high. So how do we introduce measured amounts of risk back into our playgrounds, which means the return of the rope swing, which means the return of the higher jungle, jungle gyms, and they're, they're introducing these limited risk things into controlled play environments so that children can now begin to practice resilience and grit before they have to take similar risks in an uncontrolled, unregulated, wider world. Little children of God, you are not meant to be a child forever. Little child of God, you are not meant to be a child forever. You are meant to grow and to learn, to take risks, to overcome fear and anxiety and uncertainty, to build resilience and grit. You were not meant to stay in your safe space. Safe spaces are good, but you were not meant to stay there. You were meant to test the waters, to take that first step. You don't need to go out and sign up with a mission organization to multiply God's church. But if the goal is to enjoy God, to love him and to walk more passionately in love with him, you will be called to be present in the world. You have to be present. Now maybe you're thinking, there's, there's a lot of good reasons why I'm not leaving my space. There's, there's plenty of good reasons for not leaving my space. Here are some of the reasons. It's not my job. Uh, I'm not an evangelist. Uh, I'm not equipped to multiply. I'm not ready. Sharing the gospel and making disciples is not solely the job of the pastor. The job of a pastor, shepherd, elder is to train, equip, care, and send disciples to make more disciples. That's the role of the pastor. If I'm the only one making disciples and I'm not training others to also make disciples, I'm not doing my job as a pastor. I'm not shepherding you into maturity, into the fullness of Christ. You and I have the same overall mission to make disciples. We partner together in this. This is something you and I do together. It is your job. <laughs> It is your job, because it's also my job. Um, sharing the gospel, let's see. Uh, yes, there are also different gifts. Okay, uh, it's, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not an evangelist. Okay, yes, there are different gifts that are mentioned in the Bible. There are different ministries. There are different roles. Some are called to be apostles. Some are prophets. Some are teachers. Some are shepherds. 
Some are evangelists. I get that. Maybe you don't feel called to be an evangelist. But here's the, here's the reality. All of those things, all of those roles are different expressions of the same thing. They're all different models of multiplying. They're all different models of multiplying. You're still a multiplier. You're still called to make disciples. It might look different because you are different, because God has called you into a different role, but that doesn't make you any less part of the mission. You may not be called to be an evangelist, but God has gifted you exactly the way you are to make more followers of Jesus. Exactly the way you are. Now you may say you are not equipped, but I say that you need less than you think and you have more than you know. You need less than you think and you have more than you know. When Jesus sends out his disciples in Mark chapter 6, they're, gonna, they're with him for like six months. Six months. Six months of training. Jesus then says, bring nothing with you but the clothes on your back. Depend on other people for food and beds. When they go, they have absolutely nothing to take with them except for the authority of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. I say that because they, like you, do not drive the mission of God forward. You do not drive the mission of God forward. The Holy Spirit drives the mission of God forward. Your role is simply to take steps of faith, to sow seeds and let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit will do. Most of our hurdles to doing this, they're not hurdles of knowledge or inexperience, but they're hurdles of fear and lack of faith in taking steps out of the safe space. There is training involved. In fact, that's what we've been doing for the last seven weeks. Did you know that? We've been training you. You've been equipped. You've been learning to follow. But ultimately, even in the midst of that, the goal of this, the goal of multiplication is not to replicate yourself. How often do we do that? But the goal is not to replicate yourself. It's to replicate Jesus. How does that happen? How do you replicate Jesus? By speaking his words, his truth. Sowing the seed. God grows the plant, you sow the seed. You sow the seed, God grows the plant. Don't get overwhelmed because you can't answer all the questions and change someone's life. You're not the Savior. It's not your responsibility to change someone's life. Being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus is not about having all the answers. In fact, most of the time it's about not having all the answers. Most of the time it's about not having all the answers, but you trust Jesus anyways, and you follow him wherever he leads. You don't have to have all of the answers. You are not expected to be the change agent. You don't have to be young. You don't have to be old. You don't have to be male or female. Just know the truth and how it sets you free. Yeah? Know the truth and how it sets you free. Speak truth and speak it in love. Speak truth, speak it in love. Multiplication is not about aggressively pushing someone into a relationship with Jesus. That's not how it works. We don't aggressively shove somebody into life and love and beauty with Jesus. You cannot force adoption into the family of God. And it's also not about standing idly by and hoping that somebody else is going to do the work for me. It's about learning what to say to someone's heart. Not their mind, not their hands, but their heart. Learning what to say to someone's heart. Speak truth, but speak it in love. Genuinely, compassionately, mercifully, and understanding. Love. You were meant to take a leap. You were meant to step out in faith. 
to be a follower of Jesus who makes followers of Jesus. It doesn't just end with you following. It ends with you multiplying. Fruitful plants, what do they do? They produce fruit. They multiply. The plant reproduces what the plant has become. Yeah? If a plant doesn't reproduce, it doesn't bear fruit. It doesn't multiply itself. It grows, and then it dies. And that's it. We don't want to be a church that grows, follows with as far as we can in our safe space, and then dies inside of it. We have to multiply. The only way that you can make followers of Jesus is by connecting people to Jesus. And the only way that you can connect people to Jesus is by taking a step, by being a bridge that connects. You can't do it here. You can't do it in this safe space. You have to go. You have to go. You don't have to go right this second, but you do have to go. Now, in a future series, we're going to spend several weeks going through the how of multiplying to to train you and equip you and send you, but you have to go. Where is God leading you? Where do you sense God asking you to take that first step out of the boat, out of the safety of the known and into the unknown? He is leading you, but you have to follow. He is drawing you. You have to go. I promise you that life and vitality and faith and risk and reward await you. Will you let Jesus take you and make you to become a fisher of people? What will your identity be? Will you remain a child forever? Or will you allow the Spirit to work in you to take that step to become a parent a spiritual father or mother. We need those. When you do, your life will become less oriented around your wants, your desires, your dreams, and will be defined by the spiritual needs of others and the dreams and the desires of God. Jesus is calling him, calling you to follow him. But it comes down to you. It comes down to you. Will you trust him? Will you believe and repent? Will you go where he leads? Will you lay down your life? If so, there is freedom. You are freed so that you can free others with the same gospel that has freed you. You are freed from having to spend the rest of your life looking for an agenda that is worth living for and serving because your agenda becomes his mission. You are freed from wondering if you are living your life in the right way because God shapes and reorients you around his will. Jesus says, follow me. Will you follow him? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Your love endures forever. As a father, you embrace us, you love us, you care for us, you provide for us. We need not be afraid or be anxious for anything. God, also as a good father, you train us to become fathers, to show us what fathering, parenting looks like. God, I know that you are already right now in this moment encouraging us to take steps out of this building to live a life that you have called us to live, to go and to serve and connect with people to make more followers of you. Help us, God, to listen. Help us to see the step. Help us to not fear. Help us even to to join and partner in taking that step together to walk in community outside into the in-between spaces. To meet and connect and to grow as we connect others to you. Help us to speak truth with love. 
Help us to show love with truth. God, everything that we have and everything that we are, I pray that we owe to you, that we give to you, that we say it belongs to you, that we trust you with us. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.